the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We can help your company and your employees look forward to tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Business Podcast. This is Wednesday, May 4th. I'm Kieran Hancock. And on this week's show, we'll be looking at the thorny issue of executive pay. Are the people who run our biggest listed companies really worth the large salaries and bonuses that they're paid? And later in the show, we'll assess the latest exchequer figures with Arthur Beasley and Cliff Taylor, while Suzanne Lynch in Brussels will tell us why the European Commission believes Ireland will be the fastest growing economy in Europe this year. And don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, and it's also available from our website, irishtimes.com. But first to executive pay. Now, last week, in a rare show of defiance by shareholders of an Irish PLC, some 40% of investors in CRH voted against a a motion to grant Chief Executive Albert Manifold an annual bonus of up to €8.2 million. Joe Brennan was our man on the ground for that, and he has a few more examples which he's going to share with us uh, in a few moments. But Joe, you might just tell us about the mood, if you like, at the AGM and the shareholders. What was their beef, in essence, with this bonus award for Albert Manifold. Let's remember that CRH is now a FTSE 100 company. Yeah, and I suppose that would be the excuse um, uh, that the company itself would say that it is a FTSE 100 company and that the, the, the chief executive should be paid, uh, remunerated in line with um, uh, with similar types of companies. Um, at the AGM, it's a pretty state affair. Um, most of the motions were passed by high 90s percent uh, in terms of uh, allowing the, the, the various motions to go through. Um, the one thing that surprised uh, a good number of people was the level of dissatisfaction or, or revolt against uh, the, the, the bonus package that's envisaged for the uh, the, the main um, uh, board members, or sorry, the, the main executives yeah. over the next and three I, years. I suppose it's worth contextualising for people who perhaps haven't been to a corporate AGM before. Uh, typically what happens is uh, the chairman gets up, makes a speech about how trading has gone or is going at present. Then he asks for questions on the floor. Then they move to the resolutions. Nowadays, it's in an electronic format. I presume CRH was like that. Yeah. So you get a very, uh, very quickly, you learn how many proxies are for and against a particular motion. And then there's a show of hands in the room. I'm just curious to know whether actually on the floor of the AGM, yeah, there was a lot of anger. No, or surprisingly so. Um, there was very little said about it. It was one um, shareholder stood up and addressed okay. the whole issue of pay. Um, that's so, why people were surpri- so surprised okay. when it came to the vote itself. So it was, it was largely proxies. institutions voting by proxy exactly. electronically and then the big number comes up yeah. and there's yeah. a gasp of breath if you like. Yeah and, and you're talking big figures here as well. I mean it's it's, it's, it's a big number and um, basically uh, Albert Manifold the CEO of the company is entitled mm. Tell to... Tell us about his remuneration just how well is he paid? Yeah I mean he's, his base salary is set for this year at 1.4 um, million euros um, and he can make a max of 590% of that in terms of a cash bonus and a share bonus um, in any or all of the years of the next three years. Uh, that would entitle him to a, a, a bonus pot worth somewhere in the region of about 8, 8.2 million euros Maximum. on top of his salary. Okay. Yeah. And then presumably his pension and other benefits as well. Yeah, would accrue as well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Okay. And CRH, a building materials company, we're talking about concrete and tarmac effectively here, aren't we? Yeah, no, it's, it's a huge, huge company. I mean, it's it, it transformed itself even in the last year. The massive uh, acquisition it was involved in taking over um, assets owned belonged to uh, uh, Holsom Lafarge or Hal- Lafarge Holsom. Uh, it was a 6.5 mm. billion uh, euro deal. Now, one question that was asked by the shareholder that stood up in the meeting was, 
uh, he was trying to ascertain if the, the, the bonus was in any way linked to acquisitions because if you're growing uh, a company by revenues and by earnings on the basis of acquisition, you're setting yourself up to get a greater bonus. Now, it's very, made very, very clear um, by the uh, remuneration committee at, at the shareholder meeting that um, it, the, the bonus is not linked to, to, uh, to acquisitions. You no, okay. No, CRH wasn't the only company last week that... Uh, ran into problems with its remuneration report. Shire, uh, yeah. UK company that well, domiciled here in, in 2008, yeah. and they had a similar issue. Tell us about. Yeah, that. I mean the very same day. Um, it's probably the biggest uh, revolt we've seen in in Ireland, uh, in AGM in Ireland. Um, basically, for that only barely scraped by. The the the, the CEO of the the company had a, stood to make a a compensation compensation package in the region of about twenty two million dollars um, per year for last year which was now most of that was to do with uh, long term incentive award, awards um, I think his, his, his base pay increased by 25% to 1.7 million uh, $7 million um, that barely made it over the line um, 49.5% um, uh, of shareholders uh, both proxy and in the room uh, voted against that I think the general view is if you have more than 20-25% mm. of shareholders going against a remuneration uh, package you have a problem in your hands even right. if it's not voted down right and cliff taylor uh, business editor of the irish times uh, this has been this isn't a new issue it's mm. it's been around since god was a boy um uh, here we have crh and shire both just about scraping through i remember a couple of years ago Aer Lingus had a similar issue with uh, christoph muller's remuneration package with the government government opposed but right. Ryanair supported yep. so that scraped through uh, the companies just seem to roll on they just seem to ignore investors in these situations they do and I suppose for years uh, there was a feeling that there was a bit of an old boys club in the Irish in Irish business circles uh, Irish investors were the main uh, the main people putting money into Irish companies uh, generally there was uh, very little trouble as you say uh, about executive pay uh, there were a few kind of famous occasions over the years. Michael uh, Smurfett, I think, was one. That's right, yeah, the late 80s and early 90s, not only about pay, but also about there was a feeling that investments that Smurfetts were were making at the time in, in places like the K-Club were more driven by uh, what Michael Smurfett wanted to see than the interests of shareholders. Uh, that's all a long time in the past. Now, I suppose more recently, we had the uh, pay controversies in the banks during the uh, during the crisis uh, and the government moved to cap uh, to cap pay there which uh, the bank boards now say is an issue in terms of attracting people but i think at a global level what we've seen is executive pay took a hit during the crisis internationally 2008 2009 but boy have they been making it back ever since and in the last 18 months i suppose to a year you're starting to see investors raise questions, not only about the, the overall amounts that executives are paid, but the basis on which the pay is given. So, for example, you know, if you look, if you look at Albert Manifold's pay in CRH, the vast bulk of it, he earned 5.5 million last year. The vast bulk of it came in share packages mm. and, and bonus packages, in other words, in, in, in addition to his salary. And what investors are saying is, are those packages now really aligned with the interests of investors? Are executives really being rewarded for delivering uh, delivering for shareholders or, or are they kind of uh, on a bandwagon which, see, which sees uh, increases each year? So we've seen pay revolts at, at, at Ricketts, at HSBC, at WPP, most famously at BP in the UK and we've seen a commission uh, comprised of senior uh, executives, uh, government commission in the UK say the whole system there is not fit for purpose. Mm. So there is something going on here, and I think something that Irish companies and Irish PLCs have to take note of, not only 
when you take account of the amount of money they're paid, but the in- the annual increases that they're getting, most of them in double figures, a lot in 30-40% kind of range when you look at the uh, yeah. year-on-year comparison. Now, of course, it's not just PLCs. They give the best disclosure, I suppose, in terms yeah. of uh, the money they pay their executives. But we're start- disclosure rules are changing now for yeah. you know private commercial companies. Uh, and we're now seeing the likes of Ornua, for example, yeah. formerly the Irish Dairy Board, We've now learned from the annual report published this year for the first time what they're paying their top executives. And it's €9 million Euro yeah. over two years to nine executives. Yeah, quite extraordinary. This is the company that effectively markets Kerry uh, yeah. Gold and, yeah. and other products as well. But it's an extraordinary sum of money. It's an extraordinary amount of money. And as you say, we don't have a breakdown for how much the individual executives earn. Yeah. But clearly the people at the top are on, on very significant uh, money. It is a big company. It's a big operation. It's, it's marketing all our dairy products. But it is, as you say, an eye-watering, uh, an eye-watering amount of money, and I suppose interesting to see that this uh, this controversy is entering the kind of agricultural dairy area. Started off in the IFA, moved on to Arnua. Uh, we're and starting dairy to see gold have the the co-op that's right. have released uh, the executive remuneration for their top executives as well. Two point seven million paid to nine executives uh, yeah. last year. Three hundred grand each. Nice indeed, on average. And Stan McCarthy of Kerry is one of the top earners. I think second only to uh, to Albert Manifold, over four million euro last year. Yeah, of course, Kerry's a PLC. Kerry's a PLC, exactly. Yeah, uh, but 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 also in the agricultural sector. So we're starting to see, you know, right across the right across the board. I suppose these uh, these figures are starting to raise. Uh, has the government had any opinion on Ornua, for example? Uh, uh, not that we're aware of. I suppose we haven't had a government, or we haven't had mm. a fully functioning government since that uh, mm. since that came up. There certainly was a bit of political flack over the IFA pay package. I haven't heard anything uh, said about uh, said okay. about Ornua, but I think the interesting point is, what are the other co-ops uh, who are the owners of Ornua going to say? Uh, and what are the farmer members of those co-ops yeah. who you know who who, who uh, effectively are, are supplying our new wood product yeah. and, and some of whom have had a tough time because of falling dairy prices? Joe, we mentioned the banks earlier. They're subject to a cap at the minute of half a million uh, in terms of salary. Yeah. There can be some add-ons, but in terms of salary, it's, it's half a million and no bonuses. And no That's bonus. been in place since, since what, 2009? Two, yeah, the, the report came out in 2009. Okay, so, so after I, the, I, uh, I interviewed the David Duffy, the former AIB chief executive, who's now with Clydesdale and Yorkshire Bank in the UK uh, very recently, and he said he's earning a, a basic salary of a million pounds sterling now, plus uh, bonuses, uh, plus, plus, plus. So he, he's doing much better uh, financially than he was at, at AIB. But he, he said, that if there is to be an AIB IPO either this year or next year essentially the investors are going to want the executives at AIB to have some skin in the game uh, to be part of some sort of long-term incentive program or plan um, so that their interests are aligned with those of the investors and they won't be interested in such a, an IPO otherwise. Do you, yeah, do you buy to, that? It, it's going to be very... Uh, you talk to um, institutional investors and, and there is a view out there that there should be some skin in the game. There should be some some sort of share package, a long-term incentive plan where shares are, are, are part of that. So at least for, for institutional investors that the interests of, of their interests are, are aligned to that of management itself. Um, but the problem is politically you have AIB which is majority state owned uh, almost entirely state owned um, having the government sign off on a long term incentive plan when they're trying to go out into the market would be quite difficult and particularly as well when you have a hopefully will have a, a new government in place it, uh, with the support of exactly it'd be, it'd be much more difficult than, than usual AIB had been down this road before I mean AIB were about two years ago AIB uh, 
were preparing to to go back to market and went to the Department of Finance and first flagged the idea, floated the idea of setting up an LTIP, a long term incentive plan for senior um, for senior executives, and that was shot down entirely by um, by by the by fin- um, the finance the minister yeah. um, uh, Michael Noonan at the time. Mm. Um, unusually, they went before Bank of Ireland. You would have thought that Bank of Ireland, which stayed outside of majority state control um, for the entire crisis, you would have thought that they would have gone first, but they still haven't um, gone down that road. But yes, now mind you, uh, Richie Batcher was waiving uh, a, a portion of his remuneration for a few years, but that stopped uh, last yeah, year. Yeah, less so. I think he it didn't, was... He didn't waive it. Yeah, I think he, he waived a small amount last year. I think it was... Last year was 118,000... Sorry, the year before was 118,000 um, in his report. Uh, the annual report shows that he waived um, 14,000 last year. Yeah. Um, but, sorry, let's go back to the issue uh, no, with the banks. Sorry, we, yeah. we should recall that uh, AIB still owes us over 19 billion euro. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's why some, sh- you know, shareholders who want to get involved, you know, in a, 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 a buying shares later on, that yeah. they will, um, that they, 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 their interests will be aligned to that of, 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 of the company. You could tie it. I mean, you can, ch- you can tie... Um, bonus packages to anything you can you know set cer- certain targets and i suppose if they were tied to um the state getting back its money um a certain kind of uh, a certain points i think that that could work um politically um with, with, with the government yeah cliff I, I suppose they're on the horns of a dilemma the government uh because they lost david duffy to Clydesdale in yorkshire which is a small bank in the uk context mm-hmm. it's a challenger bank a 1.6% market share. I mean, it's a tiddler in the UK, uh, mm. in the UK market. You know, whereas AIB is what number one or two in most categories uh, in Ireland, yeah. probably a 35% market share thereabouts. Um, and yet, David Duffy comfortably earns much more uh, at Clydesdale and Yorkshire than he did at AIB. And he says it wasn't just financial; there were other considerations. I'm sure there were, mm. but nonetheless, uh, it highlights the dilemma that the government have. On the one side, taxpayers are trenchant in their view that bankers should not be uh, incentivised given that they owe so much money to the state and they were bailed out and so on but on the other side market forces will dictate what pay is yeah you're right and I mean I suppose there's two uh, there's two revolting uh, constituencies I suppose here one is the uh, one is the public who as you say uh, are still uh, are still raging at the amount of taxpayers money that's gone into AIB and the other, you know, the other group is the investors who have been uh, raising questions about uh, executive pay, but f- I suppose from a different viewpoint. And their viewpoint is: look, we don't mind executives earning large amounts of money, but it's got to be when they're delivering to us. It can't be an automatic entitlement. So p- that's going to be a very difficult circle for the government to square when it comes to the AIB float. Uh, as Joe said, perhaps a way to do it is to tie uh, to tie rewards to uh, the mm-hmm. return of cash to the taxpayers, because remember, we're likely to see 25% of AIBs sold off uh, in the first in, in the first phase of the sh- of the share flotation. So the government will still hold will still hold the majority, but still it's going to be really politically difficult to go out mm-hmm. and say, okay, we're lifting the pay cap. Yeah. We realise we have to pay someone a million euro to get the best, uh, you know, to get the best chief executive. There here. is a sliver of good news in that Michael McGrath, a finance spokesman, Finfall, has previously said that we should should start considering bonuses for bankers under certain circumstances. So yeah. perhaps Finfall would be prepared to row in. Yeah, and, and, and a I mean, sensible there, proposal. absolutely, and there is a massive amount of money here for the taxpayer mm. uh, still on the hook. Yeah. Really, the, the 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 bill, the amount of money that the the bank bailout is going to cost us is going to be really crucially influenced by whether we can get most of that 
18, 19 billion back from AIB. If we can, then the bill comes down to the bailout for Anglo and Irish nationwide money we're never going to see again. If we can't, the long-term cost to the state is all the greater. So there is a there is a message there to sell, which is, you know, we need to get the best people because the taxpayer wants to get wants to, uh, needs to get the money back. Okay, finally, Joe, there's a, a big vote coming on Friday. Um, the Smurfit AGM, Smurf Kappa AGM is on. And the company has received a piece of good news with an investor proxy group coming out in support of its bonus scheme. Yeah, now it's a qualified support, um, but it is supporting it nonetheless. Um, basically, the, the gripe that the institutional shareholder service would have against the uh, Smurfit Kappa um, uh, scheme is that <clears throat> there's very little disclosure over what triggers or what triggered uh, bonus payments that are paid during a given year. Another issue with the, 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 the Smurfit plan is that legacy directors, was a, a, a part in their in their contract where they could get up to a 25% sorry get up to, uh, they could get a, um, a bonus um, payment for the maximum of bonus that we had gotten over the previous three years Right okay and Joe just finally I mean we're in AGM season obviously this is a hot topic uh, at annual meetings uh, is it is it a bit of a sort of a six week wonder? Will it will it will it pass and the whole furore will die down? Yeah, I mean in the UK it's been kind of ramping up over the last few years. I suppose this year is is, is a big year because you've got some very very big payments. I suppose the one to keep an eye out for will be the the WPP, the advertising group WPP. Um, it has its AGM next month and to top any other um, uh, remuneration package that we're going to see uh, in Ireland and the UK and probably the rest of Europe this year is that of Martin Sorrell, the uh, the, the, uh, the chief executive, um, who is set, basically, the, the say on pay or the shareholders are going to vote on his 70 million um, sterling package. Now, up until now, he's been saying that he's been using the L'Oreal uh, line that uh, because I'm worth it. Um, it'll be very interesting to see whether that actually gets through the line um, with shareholders. Interestingly, um, The Guardian, I think, in the last few weeks actually worked it out and split uh, split it up to see what it was what it actually amounted to and they worked it out it was about 5.8 um, million sterling a month 191,780 a day 7,990 um, sterling every hour and 133 sterling for every minute Right, well, it sounds like nice money if you can get it. OK, gentlemen, we'll leave it there. Joe Brennan, uh, Markets Correspondent, is going to leave us now. Cliff Taylor is going to stay, stay with us for the second half of the show. We're going to take a short break, but join us after the break when we'll be going through some economic forecasts for Ireland for the coming year. At Irish Life, we can tell you that 49% of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always-on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704-1845. Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life September 2014. 
Okay, welcome back. We're now going to take a look at some of the latest data to emerge this week on the Irish economy. In a few moments, I'll be asking Arthur Beasley and Cliff Taylor if the minority Fianna Gael government will be able to pay for the increases in pay and public services being sought by Fianna Fáil and the independents. Uh, but first, we're going to join Suzanne Lynch. She's uh, currently in Rome, but on Tuesday, the European Commission produced its latest forecast on the Irish economy, and it has revised upwards its forecast for GDP growth here, and it now believes that Ireland will once again be the fastest-growing economy in Europe. Uh, Suzanne, Explain all to us. Uh, yes, Kieran. Well, these uh, spring economic forecasts um, come around once a year, but they're, they're usually around three times a year that the uh, European Commission gives a update. There has consistently been uh, at the at, in the lead, if you like, in the last few of these forecasts, um, taking up company, a company with countries like Luxembourg, Malta, Romania, small countries like that, and um, but well ahead of the eurozone average. Um, growth in the eurozone is expected to uh, come in around one point six percent this year. Uh, for Ireland, it's going to be uh, 4.9, and that is a revision upwards from what we saw just three months ago. Um, now, according to the Commission's report, they're pretty happy with the Irish economy. They would have taken into account um, from Dublin the uh, spring economic statement that had been done, and we may see more of a kind of impact from that in later uh, analysis by the Commission, the one out from this month. That might be a bit more up to date, uh, but so far they seem happy enough with the performance. They did note, however, that, again, as predicted very heavily, the deficit reduction is very heavily uh, dependent on the facts of uh, corporation tax. Um, and it does highlight that. It also talks about uh, the Irish economy's exposure to risks and external risks in particular because of the nature of, of the open economy. It doesn't mention it by name, but obviously Brexit is something that would be uh, looming on people's minds there, as well as the overall uh, slowdown in some uh, emerging and, and big uh, economies like China and, and really that was a theme throughout for all the analysis of all 19 Eurozone countries that the Eurozone recovery is very, very um, it, it's modest it, it's quite slow but but it's quite precarious because of uh, the, the export dependency uh, of, of the Eurozone economy in general and concerns about slowdowns in countries like China. Now Arthur Easy, the exchequer figures uh, for the first number of the first third of the year uh, are out today. Uh, it shows that the uh, our income is 475 million euro ahead of what was forecast at budget time uh, last October, um, and the expenditure profile. I, I think I'm right in saying is, is down as well, or, or is in line anyway. Um, take us take us through target. some of the take us through some of the headlines. Well, I mean, at you know, at uh, 475 million ahead of target, we'd be at liberty to say that's almost half a billion uh, above the forecast. That's good news. Driven when you look in, well, driven by two things, really, driven by a 315 million overperformance in corporate tax. That continues a trend seen last year. And it's driven also by a very strong performance in excise duties. And that flows from the very high level of new car sales since the start of the year. But when you look deeper into the figures, uh, it has to be said that VAT returns are running uh, quite a deal behind target at this point of the year. They're 164 million behind. Now, look, at this is against an overall VAT take of 4.1 billion but nevertheless, it does suggest mm. that consumers are not spending as much money as might have been foreseen. Cliff Taylor, is that telling us that perhaps uh, people are a little cautious given the fact that we don't have a, a government in place some 68 days or so since the election? Yeah, it's interesting. As Arthur said, people do seem to be spending on new cars, uh, which has given a big boost to excise receipts and also uh, tobacco. 
tobacco sales are good, which also helped excises. But as you say, there does seem to be uh, a little, little bit of a soft spot there. I mean, VAT receipts are ahead of last year, but as Arthur said, they're below expectations, suggesting that kind of the strong increase in consumer spending that we saw towards the end of last year uh, may have softened a bit. People are a bit nervous. Uh, as you say, no government, a lot of talk about Brexit and the implications of it. Just a, maybe a little bit of a sense of drift. Yeah. Uh, Arthur, take us through some of the numbers on the expenditure side. What are we seeing there? Well, I mean, essentially in the round, uh, the government since the start of the year has spent in excess of almost 13.7 billion at this point, and that was 100 million below the profile. Now, that's all very well, but it is a fact and is established as a matter of fact in the political negotiations still underway all these weeks since the election that there's a big spending overrun emerging in the health department and the government is going to have to deal with that How much? whenever it takes place. And we're, talk- we're talking hundreds of millions. Uh, now, it remains to be seen how they deal with this because a, there was a problem going in to this year under the European rules. The government was uh, arguably not allowed to grant a supplementary budget towards the end of the year. This was supposed to be forbidden. The latest suggestion is that there will be some flexibility, that a supplementary budget might well be allowed. The, the polit- people in politics would tell you, well, look, at it, there's no choice. There's going to have to be one because the spending is running so far ahead of target. OK, Suzanne Lynch, are you picking up anything in Brussels which suggests that perhaps uh, the European Commission will be prepared to allow uh, supplementary spending this year? I was speaking to one person recently who was very well aware of, for example, what was happening with Irish Water, for example, but, but more or less made the point that with the highest growth rate uh, in, in Europe, it's hard to wrap Ireland on the knuckles when countries like France, Spain, Italy are continuing to miss their targets. That was one of the features of the uh, of the um, figures this week. So we, we have to see it in that context. In saying that, Ireland is one of, of the post-bailout countries, which means we're under extra scrutiny. Essentially, the European countries have lent us money under the bailout. The ESM fund is managing that money, and it needs to make sure its money uh, is paid back. So it would be within its rights to demand uh, much more scrutiny than, say, it, it's demanding uh, from other countries. But in terms of the uh, political context, I suppose it's a sign of the times that um, European figures are getting used to this. We're, we're, we're looking at a situation in Spain where we've got another election called for June um, after the government their failed uh, mm. former government and they are well past their deficit targets um, and they have been wrapped in the knuckles on Tuesday with this commission report. So I think at the moment focus on countries like that but I do think uh, there will be uh, more of a focus in Ireland maybe towards uh, the end of this month. Now Cliff Taylor, there's going to be a lot of spending pressures on this new minority Fine Gael government mm. if, if it ever comes to power. Uh, it's worked out a deal, the broad parameters of a deal with Fianna Fáil, but negotiations still taking place with independents. They want a lot uh, in return for their support. So talk us through how they're going to pay for all of this. Well, we don't know, I suppose, is the the short answer to that. Can we pay for it? I don't think so. I mean, there's... I haven't gone into the document and counted the number of spending commitments, but in the eight pages there must be a couple of dozen, uh, and there's nothing that I spotted that's going to save us any money. Uh, there's promises on public sector pay, on health, on housing, 
Uh, Irish water, that income is, yeah, is, is going to be... Promises of increased infrastructure spending, even extra spending on the Irish language. So uh, no figures in terms of how much that's going to cost. Uh, I don't know if they're being worked on in the background or they'll be included in a more formal programme for government. But uh, the scope for, 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 for giveaways in the budget this year is going to be limited enough. Uh, and presumably spending in some departments is going to have to be reduced. Yeah. I mean, uh, any sense where that's going to come? No, no, no sense at all. Um, and also, uh, there are promises of tax reductions as well, specifically, uh, specifically in USC. Uh, I think the uh, promise to kind of take the axe to USC and abolish it for all but the highest earners has been quietly shelved. But there are promises to cut USC for lower and middle income earners, so uh, that'll be expected. It'll be, it'll be a big issue for Fine Gael. So I think there's going to be, you know, these this agreement was done to get us to get us over the need to get a deal but come budget time uh, half of this is not going to be affordable Arthur uh, well I mean it, it seems to me that uh, one, one of the very few firm promises in the document is the pledge to abide by the spending rules which are a matter of domestic and European law and those rules are going to place pretty severe constraints on the incoming government and there's no getting away from that and that is if you like that's a, that's a, that, that's what faces the ministers around the cabinet table on the other side of the table when they go in to negotiate the first budget. And it seems to me the first budget is going to be the most sensitive and that's going to be the one that's going to determine whether this is, to coin a phrase deployed first by the late Albert Reynolds, a temporary little arrangement or something which proves a little more durable. Yeah, and of course we should remember that our debt servicing costs for the debt that's already there, it's it's what, three billion already this year since they're New Year's enormous, said? They're enormous, they're enormous. Don't understand, but it's 3.003 billion. <laughs> right. So don't, don't forget the last three million. And I mean, the, you know, that would be expected to rise to something like around six billion uh, when, we come, when we get to the end of the year. And that is a very, very, very onerous burden on the state and its taxpayers and the people of the state. And that is something which really received very, very little scrutiny in the political debate around the election and ever since. And it is a given that all of the money that goes to service, the abundant debts of the state, which exceed 200 billion, prevents money being made available for new health services, housing and all of the other constraints which weigh so heavily on our politics. Suzanne, is there any talk of a lack of government in Ireland, any concern in the corridors of power in Brussels? about the fact that, uh, you know, nearly three months on, we, we don't have a government yet in Ireland? Uh, there is. People are very well aware of it. As I say, there is the context of Spain and other countries. Portugal had also difficulties forming its government. Uh, but I think it was a real shock to um, the EU establishment, if you like, that they, they were holding out for um, for the government to be returned to the extent that this would have been a victory for, for austerity policies, essentially. Um, it now, following uh, the rejection of the voters of the, of the incumbent government in Ireland, uh, Ireland has followed Portugal, Spain and Greece in rejecting um, the the government that put in place uh, the bailout programmes uh, that were designed by the Troika. So I think um, the Eurozone story, if you like, needed a success, political success story here. And even this week, looking at these figures, very weak, really, in terms of Eurozone growth. And, and this is at a time when the ECB has done so much and has moved so much outside its mandate, some people would say, uh, to transfer on growth. And this is with the benefit of low oil prices. And yet still, uh, the European economy uh, is experiencing only modest growth. Uh, 
So I think there are concerns generally um, about the health steer's own economy. Okay. So in that context, if things started to get um, negative on that side, then I think um, um, the position of Ireland uh, would come under further scrutiny again there. Yeah, Cliff, uh, are we certain to get a government out of this, uh, out of these negotiations between Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil and the independents? Uh, not certain, I guess, but it does look like it's, uh, unless there's some last minute hitch with the independents, it, the, the, the mood music now does seem to suggest, yes, there will be a government. Does it give you hope for the future? Uh, not particularly, I suppose. The question is, how long is that government going to last? Uh, and as Arthur said, you know, there's going to be huge pressures over the first budget. So the, the first question is, you know, are they going to be able to able to get over that first hurdle? Uh, are Fianna Fáil going to feel able to support them over that first hurdle and support them in the decisions that they're, that they're going to make? It's it's kind of a dynamic that we haven't seen before in Irish politics, uh, where there's a party on the opposition benches, which is kind of half signed up, half in and half out. OK, they're on the opposition benches, but they're, they've given this commitment to support the government. How is that going to play out at budget time with all the demands from mm. taxpayers and all the spending pressures? We've mm. no We've no idea, really. Arthur, could it be a good thing in a way, this uh, indecision at, at the minute? Because let's say we have six months and we have a, it's, it's a pretty ropey situation around the budget and the government falls shortly thereafter um, for one reason or another. You know, essentially, might this bring the electorate to its senses and might they deliver us a, a more uh, decisive result next time around? Well, who knows? I mean, you could, you could make a couple of points. You could say in the first instance that Fianna Fáil would not have come back to the, to the extent that it did if the economy hadn't advanced to the extent that it has uh, since the crash. If the Mm. economy was still in dire straits, there would have been no hearing for Fianna Fáil, whatever. Mm. Uh, It seems to me, however, that that, that the very real pressures which remain on the economy, which remain in the wider Eurozone, which in turn has capacity to constrain the recovery, uh, there was very little hearing for all of that. There was very little proportion in the debate. Uh, An election called in crisis in a political crisis, maybe you would have a more realistic debate, but there's also the possibility that uh, the the next election, which could uh, be months away, might uh, happen in a scenario where you have a Brexit underway as a result of the referendum, which is only weeks away in, in Britain. And that Brexit... Uh, again presents a cascade of threats because there's the whole idea of very short-term pressures, volatility in financial markets, pressure on sterling, pressure on the euro, disruption for exporters, all the rest of it and political uncertainty. That in in its own right would present, uh, it seems to me, a very, very severe threat to the recovery in Ireland, even mm. in a scenario where most people who well, stand of course, back that's, all, that, that's all hypothetical, isn't it? Oh, I mean, June, well. June, June 24th, now, uh, who knows, maybe Sterling will fly. Uh, we, we don't know these things. I mean, well, we don't. Yeah, we don't. I take a point. There, there is, there. There is uncertainty, there, yeah. but perhaps, uh, perhaps things won't be as, as bleak as are being painted. Um, but Cliff, I mean, are we in danger of going back to the bad old days when... Uh, you, you know, independence and so forth were bought off with promises by government, expensive promises uh, for the taxpayer, uh, in order to secure their support and to remain in power. Yeah, I mean, we're told there aren't going to be special local deals done, but uh, I think the proof of the pudding will be will be when we see what deal is put together with the independents. Certainly, there seem to be some local issues that have come up in the talks. 
and I, you know, as I said, we are in a kind of an we are in an unprecedented position. We have been in a position before where governments have relied on independence, uh, but usually only for kind of a it always only for a relatively small number of votes. Now we have a, a bigger party relying on a just slightly smaller party, Fine Gael relying on Fianna Fáil, and how that dynamic works for both sides, I think is I think is going to be is going to be very complicated. And you know, it is it is it's hard to believe that the independents are going to give their support to a minority government without getting something. Of course the they will. I, I would have thought. I would have thought of course they will Arthur. and no matter what anyone says uh, very very earnestly in Dublin that uh, no special arrangements have been made for any independent TD it's very difficult to see any independent TD arriving back supposedly triumphant from Dub- Dublin declaring that their hands are absolutely empty and that they're going to wonder ride the government for the next three years that's true that's true okay listen we're out of time we'll see how that plays out in the coming weeks and months ahead um, that's it for this week from the Irish Times Business Podcast my thanks to Joe Brennan Arthur Beasley Cliff Taylor and Suzanne Lynch Declan Conlon produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today email at irishtimes.com you can also follow the Irish Times Business Feed on Twitter and Facebook I'm Kieran Hancock until next time take care